Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Monday, January 16th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Today is the official Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Day, and accordingly, the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier did not publish a print version of their newspaper today. So we will be reading stories from their website today, as well as several op-ed pieces from around the state. Let's begin with the weather forecast for Northeast Iowa, this from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Wet Monday ahead, a more wintry system possible Wednesday night. Plan on a wet Monday with a good chance of showers around the area, especially this morning. As temperatures climb, there may be enough instability around for a few thunderstorms to pop up as well. Look for highs into the 40s north and 50s south. At Cedar Rapids in Iowa City, this may be a record warm day since records for this date sit in the mid-50s. Whatever moisture is left tonight will probably rain or snow itself out with minimal impacts overnight. Tomorrow, plan on a cloudy and cooler day in the 30s. The next system is more of a wintry one and still looks to arrive later Wednesday, Wednesday night and into Thursday morning. This system has the potential for accumulating snow and it will be worth watching going forward. We begin with an article in the Crime and Courts Department titled, Arrest Made After Remains of Missing Man Found at Elma Home, story by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Elma. An Elma man has been charged after the remains of a missing New Hampton resident were found at his home. On Friday, Howard County Sheriff's deputies announced they charged Savone Eugene Jordan, 26, formerly of Waterloo and Charles City, on a charge of first-degree murder. Bond was set at $1 million. Jordan was arrested in connection with a November 20th search at his home at 808 Main Street, where authorities found human remains. The Iowa State Medical Examiner's Office later identified the remains to be those of Jonathan Esparza, 30, of New Hampton. Esparza was last seen leaving his home to go to a friend's house on October 20th, according to investigators. His vehicle was located November 11th. Court records show that following November search, authorities arrested Jordan in connection with drugs found at the home. They found a bag containing 23 grams of marijuana, a second bag with 233 grams, and a small electric scale. He was initially charged with possession with intent to deliver and violation of the Drug Tax Stamped Act. He posted bond pending trial on the drug charges and allegedly moved from the Elma Street address to Marion, court record state. At the time of the search, Jordan was on probation for a November 2021 eluding charge in Chickasaw County, where he allegedly gave police a fake name and was found with THC vape cartridges. He also has a prior assault conviction in a 2016 incident in which he and two others attacked a man in a Charles City Casey's parking lot. The victim suffered a broken eye socket. Now let's read the Capitol Notebook, and this version is titled, Iowa Governor Reynolds Places Moratorium on State Rulemaking. 
filed by Courier's Des Moines Bureau, Dateline Des Moines, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Tuesday signed an executive order putting a moratorium on state agencies drafting new administrative rules. The executive order also directs state agencies to conduct a cost-benefit review of every rule and regulation they have on the books and to evaluate whether there are less restrictive alternatives. Quote, Iowa's administrative code contains over 20,000 pages and 190,000 restrictive terms, putting undue burden on Iowans and the state's economy, increasing costs for employers, slowing job growth, and impacting private sector investments, unquote, Reynolds said in a statement. Quote, in Iowa, we're taking a common-sense approach that gets government out of the way and leads to a more robust economy in every community, unquote. Lawmakers said the moratorium is not expected to impact rulemaking resulting from new laws passed by the General Assembly. Reynolds, in her condition of the state address to lawmakers Tuesday night, outlined proposals to streamline state government, including the rulemaking moratorium, as well as a proposal to merge 37 executive cabinet agencies to 16. Quote, when it's all said and done, Iowa will have a smaller, clearer, and more growth-friendly regulatory system, Reynolds said during her Tuesday address, health care apprenticeships. As announced in her condition of the state address earlier this week, Governor Kim Reynolds made available $15 million in grants to increase apprenticeship programs in health care. Last year's grants, as part of a pilot program, helped Iowans become nurses. This year's program will expand to include EMTs, behavioral and substance abuse specialists, and others. Reynolds's office said the expanded health care registered apprenticeship program will bolster Iowa's health care workforce. Quote, Apprenticeships are working in Iowa and opening important doors, Reynolds said in a news release. We want to do everything we can to get Iowans engaged in the workforce and set up for meaningful careers, unquote. Grant applications are being accepted at iowagrants.gov. The deadline to apply is noon on March 9th. The grants are funded by federal pandemic relief funding. Under the heading Judicial Appointment, Blake Norman was appointed as a district judge in northeast Iowa. Norman, a native of Garner, is the current Hancock County attorney. He has degrees from University of Northern Iowa and Drake University Law School. Norman will serve in the judicial district that covers Bremer, Butler, Cerro Floyd, Franklin, Hancock, Mitchell, Winnebago, and Worth counties. Under the heading Transportation Funding, the State Transportation Committee at its regular meeting approved $7.4 million for myriad recreation trail projects, air quality programs, and grants for intercity bus programs. The Commission also approved the following. $3.9 million for eight projects in Iowa's Clean Air Attainment Program, including $1.5 million for a traffic signal master plan in Ames. $2.2 million in grants for intercity transportation programs in Burlington, Jefferson, and Fort Dodge. And $1.3 million 
for five federal recreation trails program projects. Under the heading Guard Faces Recruiting Challenges, fewer Iowans are interested in joining the Iowa National Guard than in past years, creating concerns over readiness and strength, the Guard's top general told the Iowa legislature on Thursday. Major General Ben Correll, the adjutant general of the Iowa National Guard, said in the annual condition of the Guard address that the Guard would recommit to connecting with community and making its pitch to young Iowans in the coming year. Quote, the motto of the Iowa National Guard is always ready, he said. As an organization, we face increased pressure and challenges over readiness, both at home and abroad. Here at home, the number one challenge to readiness has become strength and our ability to recruit and retain quality soldiers and airmen, unquote. The Guard employs 6,500 part-time service members, and 2,200 full-time members and civilians. Correll said other opportunities, such as attending college, had decreased overall interest in the Guard. New recruits to the Guard were around 60% of normal recruitment in the past year, he told reporters after the address. Iowa's National Guard membership fell slightly in the past year with the Army National Guard at 98% of its target and the Air National Guard at 97%. Coral asked the legislature to continue supporting the Guard Service Scholarship Program, which provides annual scholarships to Army and Air National Guard members to attend college. In the past year, demand for the scholarships increased and outpaced the money appropriated for the program, which is administered through Iowa College Student Aid Commission. Correll told reporters the commission would request an additional $1.5 million for the scholarships. Quote, it's important for Iowa. It's important for our communities to get these young people with a college education, he said. And then we've got to balance their requirements in the National Guard and their ability to go to school, unquote. Correll also said the Guard was looking to reorganize its facilities to provide drilling locations closer to home for soldiers and airmen. Most members travel more than an hour to get to their duty location. Part of that project is to build a new $20 million armory in West Des Moines, which he said is expected to be completed by 2026. The project received 75% of its funding from the federal government and 25% from the state. The Guard will also look to maintain its presence in rural communities, he said. Quote, as we move forward, we must fully balance the need to station and build in growing communities with the need to maintain and invest in our rural communities where we have historically established our National Guard facilities, Correll said. Under the heading Auditor Sworn In, Iowa State Auditor Rob Sand was sworn into the second term Thursday at the Iowa Capitol. The Decorah native narrowly held on to his seat in the November election, becoming the only Democrat elected statewide in Iowa. Sand, a lawyer, served in the Iowa Attorney General's office from 2010 to 2017 as a prosecutor of public corruption cases before being elected to the state auditor position in 2018. 
the offices responsible for auditing the financial operations of Iowa state and local governments, and provides guidance to CPA firms performing such audits. In his first term, Sand said his office identified a record amount of misspent funds and created an efficiency program to help public entities find new ways to save money, a program his office said is being replicated by Mississippi's Republican state auditor. Quote, I'm excited to continue the work that we have gotten started on, and I'm excited to do it in the same way, Sand said. He pledged to continue to manage his office in a nonpartisan manner. Sand appointed a Republican, an Independent, and a Democrat to his senior leadership team when he first assumed the role. He also thanked and recognized Republican statewide office holders who attended his swearing-in. They included Iowa Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag, Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, and State Treasurer Roby Smith. He also thanked his family, friends, and colleagues, and lawmakers, including his former boss, Tom Miller. Miller, a Democrat, served a record-setting 40 years in office as the longest-serving state attorney general in U.S. history. Miller left office at the start of the year after being defeated by Byrd in the November election, a victory that was marked by a large swing toward Republicans statewide and heavy support from Governor Kim Reynolds. Quote, one of the things I learned from Tom that I brought here was a willingness to work with people from any party, Sand said. The only thing we want to promise to the people of Iowa is truth. We are going to continue to ignore, as we have before, the party affiliation of whoever it is we are auditing, and look at the facts and look at the truth. And what matters most is we are working day and night to reduce waste, fraud, and abuse of taxpayer money in the state of Iowa, unquote. Under the heading of Home Rehabilitation Funds, Governor Kim Reynolds announced $4 million in grants to rehabilitate 131 homes in Burlington, Grinnell, Keokuk, Mason City, and Washington. The funds come from the Home Rehabilitation Block Grant Pilot Program, part of a $100 million initiative to increase the supply of housing in the state. That money was made available through the Federal American Rescue Plan's state and local fiscal relief funds. The program received applications totaling nearly $4.5 million, and applications were weighed based on need, impact, community readiness, and other criteria. Another $3.3 million in funding is being used by the communities for the projects. Quote, I've been steadfast in my commitment to advancing housing opportunities to ensure that every Iowan can live near their work, Reynolds said in a news release. Quote, to meet that goal, we must not only build new housing, but we also must preserve our existing housing stock. Today's investment will give new life to more than 130 aging homes so that Iowa families can be proud to call them home for many years to come, unquote. The homes being rehabilitated include both owner-occupied and rental homes. Mason City Mayor Bill Schickel said in the news release the improvements would boost neighborhood flourishing in the city. Under the heading Combating Human Trafficking, Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate awarded five Iowans and a business 
with awards on behalf of the Iowa Network Against Human Trafficking on Thursday at the Capitol. The awards were given on the basis of the recipient's role in leading the fight to end human trafficking, according to Pate's office. Pate has led several initiatives against human trafficking and has partnered with Iowa businesses to combat it. Quote, it was a pleasure to recognize these individuals and businesses for their support combating human trafficking across the state, Pate said in a news release. I appreciate the work they've done so far and thank them for their service working to put an end to this horrible crime. The recipients of the award are the following people. Alka Conocler of Keokuk, Leland Shipper of Des Moines, Tish Young of Cedar Rapids, IMT Insurance Company, Melody Stone of Mason City, and Sister Shirley Finneran of Sioux City. Now let's read the In the News column from the Week in Iowa section. School Choice Bill Proposed. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' key proposal for the Iowa legislative session would allow parents to take advantage of state funding to send their children to a private school. The bill would devote $7,598 to an education savings account that can be used for tuition, supplies, and other expenses. The bill passed the Senate subcommittee on Thursday. The program will be open to any student in public school, and by the third year, it will be available to any student in private school as well regardless of income. Schools would retain $1,250 in categorical funding from the state for each child attending private school. The bill also allows schools to use state funds previously devoted to specific purposes to increase teacher salaries. Judiciary faces worker shortages. The Iowa court system is strained by a shortage of court reporters that has been growing for years. Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen said in this year's Condition of the Judiciary Address that the judicial branch has established a study committee and she hopes to bring recommendations by next year. Another occupation facing strains includes contract lawyers that fill gaps to represent Iowans who cannot afford a lawyer. Christensen said the contract lawyers should receive higher pay and be reimbursed for travel when they represent clients in multiple counties. A lawmaker on the state's Judicial Budget Committee said his goal is to boost contract lawyers' pay to $100 per hour, phased in over four years, and introduce travel reimbursement. New trades building construction underway. Work continues on the construction of Sioux City Community School District's new construction trades building located at the Harry Hopkins campus in Sioux City. Expected to be completed in July, the 12,000-square-foot building is intended to provide a controlled environment for students to build two houses simultaneously over two years. Students will build a 1,300-to-1,400-square-foot house and learn introductory construction, HVAC, electrical, and plumbing trades. Here are some quotes from the past week. Quote, Our first priority in this legislative session, and what I will be focusing on over the next four years, is making sure that every child is provided with a quality education that fits their needs. 
Governor Kim Reynolds on her plans for a private school tuition assistance bill. And the next one is, Iowans didn't like the plan when there were income limits on it. They're certainly not going to like it when it means that a rich family in Des Moines can put their money in savings and take taxpayer dollars to their private school while public schools across the state crumble. That was Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst on Reynolds' private school assistance proposal. Under the heading Odds and Ends, National Guard Wants Recruits. The Iowa National Guard is facing a recruiting problem. The Guard's top general told the Iowa legislature in his Condition of the Judiciary Address this week. He said the legislature should provide more funds to a scholarship program to help recruit young Iowans. The Guard is also working on reorganizing its structure so members have drilling locations closer to home. Grassley breaks hip. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, underwent surgery this week after fracturing his hip. The 89-year-old senator said in a tweet on Wednesday that he is recovering well from the surgery and the spokesman said his office would provide more information as it became available. Under the water cooler heading, COVID cases dip, Iowa reported 2,201 new COVID-19 cases in the week ending on Wednesday, a slight decrease from the previous week. 222 people were hospitalized with the virus in the same period, down from 248 the previous week. Reynolds to streamline state government. Governor Kim Reynolds announced a plan to merge the state's 37 executive cabinet agencies into 16. She said the plan was an effort to streamline the state government and save costs while retaining and strengthening government services. Reynolds also issued an executive order pausing new administrative rulemaking and directing agencies to review administrative rules and evaluate if there are less restrictive alternatives. LGBTQ education restrictions floated. Iowa House Republicans proposed bills that would prohibit schools from teaching topics related to gender identity and sexual orientation in grades 1 through 3, drawing comparisons to Florida's so-called don't-say-gay law. Another bill would prohibit schools from affirming a student's preferred gender identity in school without written consent from their parents. Proponents of the bills say they're meant to give parents more say over how and when LGBTQ topics are brought up in schools. Republicans say it's part of a broader mission of empowering parents in education. Opponents say the measures put LGBTQ students in harm's way and censor teachers. Brenna Byrd to focus on crime. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, who assumed office this month, said she would bring new focus on crime and victims to the office as she begins her four-year term, the first Republican to hold the office since 1979. Byrd said she would conduct an audit of the Victim Services Division and find out what accommodations the office could be providing victims. She also plans to build new cold case and special victims units, as well as advocate for harsh sentences for drug dealers when the sale of a drug results in death. Byrd also signed onto lawsuits against President Joe Biden's administration, 
challenging Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and vaccine mandates, among other things. She is now representing the state in Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to reinstate a law that would ban abortion, with few exceptions. Now under the heading of Government and Politics, Firework Ordinance to be Discussed in Waterloo. Story written by Maria Cooper. Dateline Waterloo. Fewer big booms could be heard around July 4th in the city of Waterloo. The city council is set to discuss its firework ordinance at 5.30 p.m. Tuesday. The council will not meet Monday because it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The fireworks ordinance currently states that people can use or explode consumer fireworks within the corporate limits of the city on July 3rd, 4th, and 5th. On July 4th, fireworks can be set off from noon to 11 p.m. On July 3rd and 5th, the times are noon until 10 p.m. A rewrite of the ordinance is proposing that fireworks can only be set off on July 4th from noon till 11 p.m. However, the council can designate additional days of usage if those dates are adopted between January 1st and March 1st of every year. There will also be four public hearings during the meeting. One is to rezone 0.32 acres northwest of the former Kmart building on University Avenue to make way for a new storage facility at the site. At a December 13th planning and zoning meeting, officials agreed to rezone only part of the area as it butts up to a homeowner's property. The resident living there agreed to the amended rezoning. Man Road Storage, LLC, also obtained a permit for the building at the meeting. The three other public hearings are for a nomination of Fridell Bakery Building to the National Register of Historic Places, construction of a new dental building near 4020 Bankers Boulevard, and a request from C10 Investments, LLC, to vacate a utility easement near 115 East Ridgeway Avenue. Changes in animal licensing fees are also being considered by the council. Annual license fee for spayed or neutered cats and dogs could be $5 from January 1st to March 31st. After April 1st, the fee would be $10. For non-spayed and neutered pets, it would be $10 from January 1st to March 31st. After April 1st, it would be $20. Other fees, such as pickup fees, will also be discussed. In other business, the Council will consider approving the following. A development agreement with Habitat for Humanity and the 415 Walnut Collective for the rehabilitation of three residential units at 415 Walnut Street in the amount of $5,000 per unit. And a cost-sharing agreement with Gearhart Moore Holdings, LLC, for Terracon Consultants, Inc., to perform testing at the former Rath Administration Building, located at 1515 Sycamore Street, in an amount not to exceed $16,000, with the city reimbursing Gearhart Moore Holdings for 50% of the costs annually incurred. An amendment to the real estate agreement with Blackhawk Machinery Sales, Incorporated, to acquire former Alstead Langless Building. Next, Sandy Greco 
retiring after 54 years of serving Waterloo. Story filed by Maria Cooper. Dateline Waterloo. Sandy Greco has worked in a man's world for more than 50 years. Now she's leaving the city of Waterloo's Public Works Department as the Traffic Operations and Animal Control Director to focus on retirement. Quote, it's time for me to move on and let the younger group command, Greco said. I have no regrets. I gave it my all. Born in Waterloo, she graduated from Columbus Catholic High School in 1970. But before she graduated, she started at Public Works as a clerk in 1969. She then went to University of Northern Iowa, but left when she was offered a full-time position with the city. Eventually, she ended up going back to college at Upper Iowa University in 1988 for a degree in management. Twelve years later, her supervisor promoted her to director. Greco's most memorable moments are from the people she worked with every day. Quote, I've worked with these people for so long, they're my second family, she said. We brainstorm, we work together, we're a team, you know. She also enjoyed the time she got to spend with the people of Waterloo. She said she wishes she got to meet more of the people she served. One way she did get to meet them, though, is through Public Works Day. Each year, Public Works would open up its facility for people to tour and ride the heavy equipment. She said she loved seeing faces, both kids and adults, light up when riding something like a lift truck. Quote, I think it gives people an, an idea of what we do, she said. It's not just getting in a garbage truck and picking up garbage. There's a lot more to it than that. I'm going to miss that, unquote. Apart from spending most of her time at Public Works, she also taught dance to children and adults for 35 years. She said she'd work until 3.30 p.m. on Wednesdays and then head to Dixie School of Dance to teach until 10 p.m. Quote, that was my outlet, she said. Last year, she joined a group of women who performed a dance routine for veterans going on an honor flight trip to Washington, D.C. Even though Greco referred to all the current department heads at Public Works as her sons, she expressed excitement about spending more time with her actual family. She recently returned from a month in Saudi Arabia to see her son Sam and his wife Melanie, along with her grandkids. She also has two daughters, Amy and Angelina. As a woman who succeeded in a career working mostly with men, she's had some words of advice for her daughters about jobs. She has the same message for all females. Quote, I think any girl who believes in anything can achieve it, said Greco. No matter what field it's in, you just have to go for it, unquote. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 16th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's continue reading from the opinion section. This first editorial was written by John Cullen of the Storm Lake Times Pilot. Pity poor Harry and Meghan. I shouldn't really care about Prince Henry and Meghan Markle, but I can't help myself when every time I look up I see them on TV whining about how difficult their fairy tale lives are. They're spoiled brats. The British prince and American actress claim to want their privacy, to live normal lives and avoid public scrutiny. 
So they write tell-all books, bear their souls on countless TV shows, and make themselves the subjects of a documentary movie on Netflix. Not my idea of retreating into privacy. Living in North Dakota instead of Southern California would achieve that. They didn't endear themselves to the British when they abandoned merry old England for sunny old Los Angeles. They also didn't endear themselves to Harry's family, which cut off his royal allowance that amounted to millions of dollars each year. His main job, like other royals, was to show up at a few charity events. Harry and Meghan, who has a white father and a black mother, blame many of their problems on racism, particularly within the royal family. I don't believe the royal family is racist. Out of touch, maybe. Apparently, Harry feels slighted because he's not in line of succession to be king someday. That distinction belongs to his brother William, to whom Harry doesn't speak. Harry also doesn't speak with his father, King Charles, who married Camilla Parker Bowles, the stepmother Harry hates. Meghan not only doesn't get along with her in-laws, she also doesn't get along with her own family. Her father didn't attend her wedding. She's estranged from a brother and a sister. Her sister has sued Meghan for defamation. It's all about money. In his book, Spare, out this week, and the genesis for all his royal family bashing, Harry claims to have killed 25 Taliban soldiers during two tours of duty in Afghanistan. That upset his former commanding officer, who said it broke an unwritten rule not to talk about your battlefield exploits. I've never known a soldier who bragged about killing. I will give Harry credit for his military service. He spent 10 years in the British Army, mostly as an Apache helicopter pilot, a dangerous assignment. He could have found an easy gig in headquarters, but the grandson of the Queen didn't shirk his duty. He just blabbed about it. Art and I do not plan on writing tell-all books about our family. There's not much to tell. At least, nothing that's very interesting. Sometimes growing up, I thought we had a dysfunctional family because ours didn't look like Ozzy and Harriet's. Readers under age 60 will have to look that up. Turns out we were pretty normal for a family of six kids growing up in the 1960s. Polls indicate the British people are tired of Harry and Meghan, as I am. I hope they can find happiness and reunite with their family someday, but they need to get off the pity pot. Their lives could be pretty sweet if they just stop and smell the roses. Cheers! Next we have an editorial written by Ross Dothert, and it appeared first in the New York Times. Will there be a Biden comeback? Something unusual happened to Joe Biden this week. A reputable poll from The Economist and YouGov showed him with a positive job approval rating, even hitting 50% approval among registered voters, against 47% disapproving. Maybe the poll was an outlier, a blip. Biden's approval numbers have improved since his summertime nadir, but his polling average is still below 45%. Maybe any improvement will be undone by further revelations about stashed classified documents from his VP days, though it will be hard to top the comedy value of some of the papers being in the garage with his Corvette. But as congressional Republicans gear up for a year of internal knife fights and fiscal brinkmanship, 
it's worth considering what it would take for a true Biden comeback, a return to actual popularity. Before the midterms, I tried to identify three original sins in the Biden administration, three freely chosen, unnecessary courses that contributed to the president's underwater numbers. They were the White House's early decisions to limit energy production and roll back some Trump immigration policies, which were then followed by the gas price spike and the border crisis. The surfeit of spending in the American Rescue Plan that contributed to the inflation surge and the failure to show any actual moderation on cultural issues to match Biden's original moderate Catholic Democrat brand. One issue I didn't include was the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, both because it wasn't a major issue in the midterm campaign and because I thought the withdrawal itself was a necessary and gutsy decision notwithstanding the disastrous execution. But if you look at the arc of Biden's approval ratings, the fall of Kabul looks like a major inflection point, a moment that sowed the first serious doubts about the administration's competence. So envisioning a Biden comeback requires imagining these liabilities being overcome or reversed, or just having their salience diminished. On the economy, such a scenario would run like this. The Republican House snuffs out any possibility of new inflationary spending. Inflation continues to diminish without unemployment surging. China's reopening helps normalize the global economy. Putin's energy weapon proves to be a one-off blow rather than a continuing drag. And we get through this strategic post-pandemic period without a real recession. On foreign policy, the Biden best case is probably further gains for the Ukrainians in the spring, and then some kind of stable ceasefire, which would enable him to take credit for blunting Russia's aggression and also successfully managing the risks of World War III. We may get more of a bloody stalemate instead, but the White House's handling of the Ukraine war is probably its most successful policy to date. If it still looks successful in a year's time, the memory of the Kabul breakdown should be fully washed away. On immigration and the border crisis, the Biden administration clearly thinks it's pivoting rightward with new restrictions on asylum. The political effectiveness of the policy, though, will turn on whether it actually succeeds. On other cultural issues, meanwhile, it seems unlikely that Biden will execute any notable pivot. But the White House can hope that a divided government will effectively ease voter anxieties about wokeness without the administration needing to make any enemies to its left. The role of congressional Republicans generally is key to the recovery scenario. The Biden administration can look back on successful political rebounds by Bill Clinton and Barack Obama that were clearly mediated by GOP fecklessness. On the evidence of Kevin McCarthy's speakership to date, history may be returning to those grooves. But with this important difference, Clinton and Obama were unusually talented politicians in the prime of their political lives, while Biden is something else, a likable enough political insider who's now conspicuously 
too old for his job. Occasionally, this reality can be oddly advantageous for the White House in cases like the classified document revelations or the Hunter Biden imbroglios. The idea of Biden doing something shady accidentally or cluelessly rather than with conspicuous corruption is more plausible than in prior presidencies. But mostly, Biden's age creates challenges that the Clinton and Obama administrations didn't have to worry about. When events turn against his administration, as they did in 2021, and certainly could again in 2023, if the above scenarios don't pan out, this president can look especially overmastered, especially ill-equipped to lead or turn the ship around. And even when things are going relatively well, even in a clear rebound scenario, the shadow of Biden's diminished capacities may still be a drag on his support. Presuming, that is, that Republicans find an opposing candidate who draws clear contrast in vigor and capacity. If they return instead to a certain former president whom Biden beat once already, well, that's the strongest comeback scenario and the clearest path to another term. Our next opinion piece was written by Matthew Connolly for the New York Times. Why do documents marked secret keep showing up in strange places? There is much we still do not know about President Biden's stash of secret documents, but one thing is painfully obvious. The system for protecting secrets vital to national security has spun out of control. The question is why. No one should be surprised that documents marked secret keep showing up in strange places. Last July, the government's own watchdog in charge of managing systems for protecting national security information, Mark Bradley reported that this office decided to stop trying to count how many secrets the government created each year. Quote, we can no longer keep our heads above the tsunami, unquote. No doubt, partisan Republicans and Democrats will continue insisting that it is the other side that has recklessly endangered national security when they are not insisting that there is nothing to see here or claiming a partisan witch hunt that just serves to distract from what they call real issues, as Hillary Clinton did. But how many more of these scandals need to explode before we recognize that there is a deeper problem, one that we cannot begin to solve unless we come together as a country and confront it head-on. The problem is not some deep state conspiring in the shadows in defiance of our elected leaders. It's true that many people profit from the current system, which costs over $18 billion a year as of 2017, the last time Mr. Bradley's office publicly guessed at a total, and allows countless unnamed bureaucrats to evade democratic oversight. Those involved in this system include even presidents who have resisted almost any congressional oversight or judicial review in determining whether information should be classified or made public. The president's almost exclusive authority over determining what constitutes national security information and who can have access to it is unlike anything else in American politics a form of power that is fully sovereign with almost no effective checks or balances. No wonder it has proved so intoxicating. Donald Trump's refusal to release the classified documents he held at Mar-a-Lago 
even after being warned that he was breaking the law, is just an extreme case of this powerful addiction, one that Joe Biden, after serving as vice president, may have struggled with as well. This is not a new problem. Presidents since Teddy Roosevelt, and sometimes even before, have tried to manage what Americans know about what presidents do, and almost everyone has had the same message. They will be much more forthcoming than their predecessors. But then they go on to betray those promises. Woodrow Wilson campaigned in 1912 on the proposition that there ought to be no place where anything can be done that everyone does not know about. But he presided over vast new systems for surveillance and censorship and negotiated the Treaty of Versailles behind closed and guarded doors. Franklin Roosevelt, like his distant cousin Teddy before him, was a master of public relations, and both Roosevelts made themselves unusually available for media appearances, but they also believed deeply in secrecy, and Franklin Roosevelt delighted in compartmentalizing top secrets, even within his own administration. Harry Truman was a famous straight-talker, yet even when he expanded his predecessor's security classification system, he claimed it would make more rather than less information available. Dwight Eisenhower curtailed the number of agencies that could create secrets and eliminated the catch-all restricted classification. His own Defense Department found these changes made little difference and the problem of overclassification kept growing. Not to be outdone in making himself available to journalists, demanding more transparency, Lyndon Johnson famously lifted his shirt to show the scar across his belly from a gallbladder operation. But behind the scenes, he was contemptuous of the Freedom of Information Act and quietly sabotaged it. Mr. Trump was the first president after World War II not to issue a new order regulating the government system for secrecy. He came into office railing against the deep state and government surveillance, but he kept Mr. Obama's secrecy policies in place and made a habit of tearing up presidential papers into tiny pieces. Mr. Biden promised a recommitment to the highest standards of transparency, but his administration has not given policymakers in this area much more priority than did the Trump administration. After his first year, advocacy groups were unable to find anyone in the White House who was even working on the issue. A rule with real teeth would require departments and agencies to match spending on public relations and advertising, in the case of the Pentagon, some $600 million a year, with spending on reviewing and releasing formerly secret information to the public, and courts could finally overturn the infamous 1953 United States v. Reynolds precedent, cited over 800 times, typically to deny Freedom of Information Act appeals, in which federal officials fraudulently claimed that a judge could not even look at a classified document without endangering national security. Judges could show some independence. In the end, it may be necessary to create an independent agency analogous to the Federal Reserve, that takes sovereign control over secrecy away from the president. It could have a mandate to prevent inflation in official secrecy while protecting truly dangerous information. Otherwise, 
we will go on living in a political environment that both avoids accountability and endangers national security. Now let's continue with local news from The Courier. Employees get jail probation for livestock fraud. This story was filed by Jeff Reinitz, and the dateline is Wacoma. A bookkeeper at a Wacoma-based livestock dealer has been sentenced to six months behind bars as part of a fraud investigation. Billy Joe Wickman was sentenced to jail plus three years of supervised release on a charge of conspiracy to defraud the United States following a hearing in U.S. District Court on Friday. Another company official, Sow Procurement and Marketing employee, Charlie Lynch, was sentenced to five years of probation on a conspiracy charge. Both men were fined $3,000 each, according to court records. Two other Lynch livestock employees, Leland Pete Edward Blue, a sow marketing worker, and Tyler Jeffrey Toms, a livestock station manager, also were scheduled to go before a federal judge for sentencing on Friday. Minutes from the hearings have been sealed, and the outcome remained unclear as of Friday night. Both were released, records indicate. Quote, the scheme consisted of falsely and fraudulently reducing and downgrading the numbers, quality classifications, and weights of swine that producers and sellers had delivered to Lynch Livestock at its buying stations throughout the Midwest. Prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office for Northern Iowa wrote in sentencing documents, quote, It was also part of the scheme to lie to USDA officials and customers in order to conceal the scheme to defraud and to lull livestock sellers into a false sense of security about Lynch Livestock's buying practices as a dealer under the Packers and Stockyards Act. The corporation, Lynch Family Companies Incorporated, was also charged in the investigation, and in July officials entered guilty plea on the company's behalf. Sentencing for the corporation is scheduled for February. Under a joint sentencing agreement, the company will face a $196,000 fine and three years probation, and will pay $3.04 million in restitution. The company will be given credit for $1.24 million in restitution already paid as part of USDA sanctions from 2017 and 2021. The government also agreed to end probation early if the company sells off all of its interests in swine buying stations. The next story was also written by Jeff Reinitz. Blood alcohol level in fatal crash was more than twice legal limit. Dateline, New Hampton. A West Union man had a blood alcohol level more than twice the legal limit when he led authorities on a high-speed chase in September that killed his son, according to recently released court records. Arraignment has been set for January 24th for Curtis Allen Williams, 38, charged with homicide by vehicle, driving while revoked, and operating under the influence of alcohol in the rollover crash on U.S. Highway 63 off-ramp that claimed the life of Jackson Williams, 18, of Decorah. A trial information with the formal charges 
was filed Friday in Chickasaw County District Court. Williams was also cited for speeding, failure to maintain control, a taillight violation, and reckless driving. Bond was set at $32,000. A blood draw following the fatal crash determined Williams had a blood alcohol level of 0.209 record state. The legal limit in Iowa is 0.08. Officials at the scene also noticed an odor of alcohol coming from Curtis Williams, and authorities found a container of twisted tea in the blue Mini Cooper he was driving, court records state. Records also indicate the original reason for the attempted traffic stop that sparked the chase. A Chickasaw County Sheriff's deputy was running radar at the 2800 block of Highway 63 around 1.14 a.m. September 26th when he noticed the Mini Cooper go past with a defective taillight. The vehicle began to pull over to the side and slowed when the deputy triggered his top lights, but the car then sped up and pulled back onto the highway. The pursuit reached speeds of 106 miles per hour in the highway's 65-mile-per-hour zone, record state. The Mini Cooper failed to negotiate a curve on an off-ramp at mile marker 196. It rolled several times and came to rest on its passenger side. Jackson, a passenger, died at the scene, according to deputies. Curtis Williams was also injured and taken to a hospital for treatment. Deputies said Curtis Williams's license had been revoked for an earlier impaired driving allegation. Now we have a story titled, Alley Oop Comet Strip Artist Jack Bender Leaves Behind a Lengthy Legacy of Creativity. Story was filed by Melody Parker and begins with a photograph of Jack Bender celebrating his 91st birthday, Dateline Waterloo. Jack Bender was one of a kind, said longtime friend Lon Griffith, Bender, a Waterloo native, who gained national prominence for drawing and inking the beloved time-traveling caveman comic strip Alley Oop. He died on January 5th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, from complications of dementia. He was 91. Quote, Jack was such a gentleman, a kind man, and a good man, said Griffith, who grew up in Parkersburg and now resides in Arizona. Quote, he took such pride in taking over that national cartoon, which Bender drew for 28 years. Quote, he had a good ride, and he'll be missed, said Griffith. There will be no service. Family members asked that those who knew Bender and appreciated his work raise a glass in his memory. Griffith met Bender in the Courier newsroom where they both worked, forming a friendship that spanned more than 50 years. Quote, I really admired Jack. Week in and week out, he was, he was able to draw cartoons about the news of the day, and he'd take time to draw cartoons about sports figures, high school standouts, and could really capture the look of people, Griffith said. One of his prized possessions is the cartoon Bender drew of Griffith rural rover coverage for the Courier. Quote, I think Jack would like to be remembered as an artist who worked hard every day to do the best work he could, said Bender's wife, Carol. Quote, he'd like knowing that he got his message across to his readers and that people enjoyed his work and will remember it and him fondly, unquote. Tributes have been pouring in, she said, particularly on Facebook. 
before I posted anything. I finally got a few days, got up the courage to post something. After I wrote his obituary, I shared it on Facebook, and responses just flooded in. It's so amazing what people have to say about Jack, what they remember, unquote. John Henry Jack Bender was born March 28, 1931, in Waterloo, the son of John Henry Hank and Wilma Lowe Bender. He was drawing trees and rabbits at age three and entertained himself for hours with paper and pencil, Bender said in the 2002 Courier interview. And friends, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 16th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 